Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Bill Kanaski here. Very special guest today on a uh, extraordinarily important topic. Um, as we all know, um, TBI claims are um, popping up left and right. They are through the roof. And a lot of um, information out there on TBI uh, and as defense counsel or as uh, uh, a client or an insurance uh, adjuster, a claims person, I think it's really important to understand what you're getting into with uh, TBI claims, uh, what goes into uh, that type of assessment uh, of a plaintiff, and some of, the, some of the ins and outs of the assessment, how it's presented during deposition, how it's presented uh, during trial. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Boone. Uh, faculty member at uh, UCLA. Uh, Dr. Boone and I presented together a few months ago uh, at a seminar, which was which was great fun. Dr. Boone, how are you today? Just fine. It's finally stopped raining in California, briefly. I, I heard it was snowing in California a few <laughs> weeks ago. Is this true? There were snow flurries on the Hollywood sign. I kid you not. <laughs> that is Absolutely unbelievable. You know, maybe hell is freezing over. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have palm trees and snow. Go figure. Well, well, here in Florida, um, it actually did snow in North Florida, but North Florida is kind of like South Alabama. It's really not Florida, but in Central Florida here, uh, no snow, but it has gotten cold. But I am proud to say that uh, it's ninety degrees today outside in sunny <laughs> Florida, and I, I'm very okay uh, with that uh, as we enter the the summer months. So, Dr. Boone, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I really want to educate, like kind of given the, the TBI uh, kind of 101 uh, for our listeners. Uh, you are a neuropsychologist, which I think is fantastic because that's what my background and training is. And I remember those very long days uh, clinically uh, in grad school at the University of Florida and at the Health Science Center doing, you know, full day neuropsych batteries. And uh, those are very, very long days. Very yes, long they are. Days. Yeah. And, uh, but very, very important because so much work and effort goes into those, um, into those assessments. And it's very important that you have somebody competent and qualified uh, doing that, which is another issue we should probably talk about today is uh, when you're hiring an expert witness, you know, who's doing this stuff, which is very important. But can you just briefly tell, uh, introduce yourself uh, to, our um, our audience talk about what you've done academically, clinically, and your work as an expert witness? Sure. So I'm here in Los Angeles, and I've been a faculty member through UCLA for probably 30 years now. Wow. And um, I also set up and operated the neuropsychology testing service at Harbor UCLA Medical Center here in Los Angeles. And then I've been very interested in conducting research, particularly in developing and validating techniques to detect when test takers are not performing to true ability when you're getting inaccurate data. Which is important because when you have litigation, <laughs> I guess, I mean, right. there's a high motivation to not be honest, right? <laughs> or, to, or to fake it to increase your, right? Because I guess the ultimate goal is to increase damages, increase financial um, award. How many times have you testified as an expert witness? Probably, um, so at deposition, probably well over 300 times, probably at trial, uh, probably well over 100 times. And that's exactly why I have you on this show. And I'm so glad I met you in California. It was an honor to present with you. But now we have, we don't, we're not dealing with anybody else. We have just our own rules here on the Litigation sure. Psychology Podcast, so we can go through here. So let's, and, and you can start where you want to, but let's take our audience through you know, what a TBI is, right? And let's go through sure. some of the, you know, the various assessments of, of, of that and go ahead and take it away. And I'll, I'll jump in with questions and comments, but I think it's going to be very educational. I want this to be a very educational uh, episode today for our audience. Sure. So today I'm going to be focusing on mild traumatic brain injury. That's the type of situation that neuropsychologists are typically involved in when we are experts in litigation. And first of all, um, concussion and mild traumatic brain injury are interchangeable terms. They are the same thing. And the diagnostic criteria for a concussion and or a mild traumatic brain injury, there are four components. The first one is loss of consciousness less than 30 minutes, 
Glasgow Coma Scale of 13 to 15. The Glasgow Coma Scale is a gross measure of uh, central nervous system function. It's used by first responders, it's used by ER staff, and it's trying to get a handle on the integrity of the central nervous system, and the highest score is 15. Then we look at enterograde amnesia of less than 24 hours. Enterograde amnesia would be loss of memory for events immediately after injury. And then the final component is no trauma-related findings on brain imaging. But quite frankly, um, Bill and I and anybody else listening to this podcast would actually meet these criteria. So you, we have to go one step further, which is immediately after injury, there has to be some evidence of altered mentation, altered thinking skills immediately after the accident. And that can be in the form of repetitive questioning, uh, being confused. And the first responders are very adept at picking up on that. So now I'm going to go through some uh, statements and uh, we're going to discuss whether or not these are truths or myths regarding mild traumatic brain injury. So the first one is diagnosis of mild traumatic brain injury is based on patient self-report of symptoms, days, weeks, months, years post-injury. That definitely would be a myth. Concussion or mild traumatic brain injury is based on injury characteristics on the day of injury, not what the patient self-reports later on. The next statement, people do not recover cognitive function after mild TBI. That is also a myth. And in a minute or so, I'm gonna go through some of the um, authoritative sources for that conclusion. The next statement, okay, well, a subset do not recover cognitive function after mild TBI. That also is a myth. The next statement, well, isn't there a miserable minority up to 15% of mild TBI patients who do not recover their cognitive function. That also is a myth. And I would point you to the DSM-5 text revision. So the DSM-5 is the diagnostic manual for mental health professionals. It came out in 2013, and then a text revision came out last year in 2022. And pulling from that volume, the statement is made, neurocognitive impairments associated with mild TBI typically resolve within days to weeks after the injury with complete resolution within three to 12 months post-injury. So they're not saying most people recover. They are saying recovery is complete by three to 12 months. Also, there have been six meta-analyses. A meta-analysis is where all research in a given area is collapsed for an ultimate conclusion. And there have been six of these meta-analyses on outcome from concussion. All six of them have shown no long-term consequences from a concussion. And these meta-analyses collapse dozens of studies, involve thousands of patients, and they are viewed as very definitive. Next statement, doesn't having a concussion raise the risk of developing dementia, namely Alzheimer's disease? That also is a myth, and I would point you to the Alzheimer's uh, organization website. Quote, there is no evidence that a single mild traumatic brain injury increases cognitive decline and dementia risk. The next that's, statement. That, 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 that's a huge one. Let's, let's, let's stop there because yeah. you yeah. hear that all the time is that if you do have a mild TBI, there's this, it's a major assumption that it's going to lead to eventual cognitive decline in older age, Alzheimer's, um, you know, things like that. Um, that's a pretty prevalent myth. What, what, in your experience, what are the sources uh, of these myths? Because I have heard jurors during, you know, mock trial deliberations start coming up with this stuff and there's, there's no science behind it. Where, where do people get this stuff from? Well, um, so first of all, with mild uh, sorry, to moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, there is an increased rate of uh, dementia. So there is an increased risk, but that would not be true for concussion. Sure. And uh, that actually brings us to the next statement is what about the retired NFL players? Because I think this is where the general public is getting the idea yep. that you can get dementia from a concussion. Yep. 
So uh, there have been movies about NFL players that's been written about in newspapers. So I think that it's gotten out into the general population that concussion equates to developing dementia in the future. But we have to consider about these NFL players. First of all, the research is still being conducted on these players. Secondly, their brains do show markers for what we call CTE. CTE is a marker of trauma. It's showing that the brain did experience trauma, but CTE in the brain does not necessarily equate to any loss of function. And the example that I'll provide you is Frank Gifford. So I'm not a big football uh, watcher, but it's my understanding that Frank Gifford played for many, many years. And then after he retired, he was a commentator for over 20 years. And his fellow commentators consistently reported that he was prepared, he was on time, he was witty, he was making astute comments. Then he dies and he had CTE throughout his brain. So again, that illustrates that you can have markers of trauma, but it does not necessarily equate to a loss of function. And I would give the analogy that if you fracture a bone until the day you die, that will show up on an x-ray but you can fully recover from that fracture. Great yet point. it will still show evidence of uh, the original fracture on x-ray. So simply showing evidence of trauma does not equate to permanent loss of function. And it's actually estimated that football players sustain 1500 blows to the head per year of play. Yeah. Uh, and that's worrisome. I have to say that's very worrisome, mm -hmm. but the research and findings on NFL players do not equate to plaintiffs with a single concussion. So NFL players may in fact, a subgroup of them may in fact have an increased risk for dementia, but that is not true of the general population who's had one concussion. Excellent. Right. Yeah, I, I do. I do think you're right. Is that the um, and 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 for good reason? Because I, I mean, you know, my son played youth football, right when this topic started coming out, and um, that was roughly ten, you know, ten years ago, and now uh, you see this crazy decline in you know youth sports participation, particularly uh, in football, uh, because of that information that um, and they, like you said, they made that the, they made the movie about it, but obviously there's if you're getting uh, a large number of repetitive um, uh, impacts uh, to the head versus versus one event, um, you can see how there'd be um, uh, you know clear clear differences there. And do, do you think do you think that the way this has come out, um, primarily through the NFL uh, and a combination of the media, do you think that's impacted um, jurors' understanding? of what TBIs are and maybe they've they've misunderstood it because they're they're so focused on the on the athletic um, sample here? Absolutely. There have been a few occasions in which jurors have been allowed to ask me questions at the end of testimony yeah. in cases like this. And uh, they consistently ask, what about NFL players? So that when they're sitting in that jury box, they are thinking about what they've seen and read and heard about mm -hmm. uh, NFL players and dementia. So I recommend that when I'm going to testify, I typically will uh, craft sample direct questions that the uh, defense attorney can choose to use. And one of them absolutely relates to the research on NFL players and whether or not it applies to the case at hand because the jurors are thinking about it. And so that's, it sounds like that's a pretty, um, I, I've, I've seen it uh, totally in the mock trials and the focus groups and even after real trials, uh, you know, talking to jurors um, that has come up. What other types of questions? That seems to be a pretty frequent question, but this is this is gold right here uh, when the because uh, not all venues are jurors allowed to ask questions of, of witnesses. What are maybe some of the other types of questions you've got um, gotten from jurors? Because I, I think that's really fascinating because it's it's you don't get to hear this a lot. Uh, so that's interesting. This is the question that actually sticks out most prominently in my mind. But uh, you will get other things like, um, what about older age? Do older people have a harder time recovering? And actually, the research shows that older patients recover as quickly as younger patients for the most part. Um, sometimes they'll ask about... Um, how a little bit later on, I'm gonna be discussing our performance validity test. And yes. they'll 
want to know things like um, how many studies have been done, um, just wanting to be reassured that the tests were well validated. Excellent, thank you. So the next statement, um, okay, so if individuals do not have long-term cognitive problems from a concussion, do they have long-term headaches, balance problems, vision problems? We hear a lot about something called convergence insufficiency. Do they have irritability? Do they have depression, anxiety, poor coping ability? on a long-term basis after concussion? And that would be a myth. The answer is no. The research shows that there are no long-term headaches or balance problems, vision problems, irritability, psychiatric issues after a concussion. And a big uh, issue that's occurring here in California is that plaintiffs are being sent to optometrists who are diagnosing convergence insufficiency. But the research shows that there's no increased risk of this condition in individuals who've had a concussion and that it's highly prominent in normal individuals. So I feel strongly that when experts testify, they have to testify based on the authoritative research. You can't come in and just um, give opinions just because um, you're providing hypotheses or conjecture. You really do have to ground your opinions in the peer reviewed literature. The analogy would be if a case involved um, uh, geology or whatever, and is the earth flat or round? <laughs> well, experts do not have the option of coming in to testify that the earth is flat because the research shows that it is round. I would view that as comparable here, that experts really do have to ground their conclusions in the peer-reviewed literature. That, so coming I, think, I think that's, I think that's really, um, at least for me, that, I think for me, me, that's, um, important have you um have you had the opportunity um well obviously you get the opportunity to review the opposing experts you know probably their deposition transcript and then maybe you've been able to stay in the courtroom i'm not sure if you have or not to see an opposing expert testify have you ever had the experience where you're, you're reading the opposing experts deposition or you're seeing them testify at trial and you're just like oh my gosh, I cannot believe what this person is saying. And you're almost appalled? All the time. Oh. They will say things like, well, because the person had um, pre-morbid ADHD, it sets them up for a worse recovery from concussion. What? But then what? I would say, okay, where's yeah. the literature? Point me to the proof. And there is no proof. So in other words, they're just hatching up these uh, thoughts and ideas that have no grounding. And I see that all the time. And I, I really think that it's important for attorneys to repeatedly ask those experts, what is your authority for that opinion? I think, I think that's a, a very good point. And, um, and I assume that when you are retained as an expert, I wanna make sure our audience can get your information at the end here uh, in case they need you, because I know these TBI cases are popping up all over the place. Um, I assume that um, you can help defense counsel um, plan and strategize their cross-examination of the other expert, correct? You bet. So I have offered on occasion to write cross-exam questions. So not only questions for myself, but questions for the opposing expert. Yeah. Because the reality is that the neuropsychologist knows where the flaws are in the logic and the testimony of the opposing experts. So we should be the ones helping uh, to draft the questions. Excellent. So then the next question is, why do some individuals report long-term symptoms from a concussion? What's going on here? Well, what the research tells us is that post-concussive symptoms are common in normal individuals. And one of my favorite studies, there's some studies you read and you think, wow, that's so elegant. I wish I had done that. Anyway, in this particular study, they took athletes who had a history of concussion but in the past, and they asked them to rate themselves on post-concussive symptoms currently, and they reported a fairly high number. But then they asked them to rate themselves on post-concussive symptoms before the concussion. They reported a small number. But the brilliant part of the study was they then took athletes who'd never had a concussion, and they asked them to rate themselves on post-concussive symptoms currently. What happened? 
they reported a high number. Wow. So over and over again, normal individuals are found to report a high number of post-concussive symptoms. These are not specific to TBI in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Also, patients with depression report a high number of post-concussive symptoms. Yeah. It's estimated that 90% of patients with major depression meet criteria for post-concussive syndrome, and they've never had a concussion. Also, patients with chronic pain, individuals who had ADHD before at a pre-morbid level, yeah. um, are misdiagnosed with post-concussive syndrome. Also, patients with sleep problems. So these symptoms are ubiquitous, and they are found in normals in many, many conditions, and they are not specific to TBI. And there's actually a move afoot to retire the term post-concussive syndrome because it's not specific to concussion. Dr. Boone, this, now this, I think this is fascinating right, right here. Speak because many, many plaintiffs, well, many people just in general, I'm sure in your practice, and I think it's a really important uh, question and topic that our audience would be very interested in, is most of us, regardless of what our, you know, we go to the doctor for, we have some sort of in injury, the first question they ask you, you know, what are your pre existing conditions? And most plaintiffs, most, um, do have other things going on prior to their to their alleged head injury. Um, as a clinician, um, when you're assessing a patient, how how do you because with these comorbidities, how, how do you tease things out? Because like you said, there's a lot of overlap in these symptoms with these other things going on. How do you, as a clinician, um, um, essentially separate those, even if if you can? To, to make your uh, um, to make your assessment because you got some some pretty complex issues here uh, you know from people's past and current functioning that I imagine can give you can give you a headache uh, during your assessment correct sure so um, one approach that I've taken is that again you go to the research literature and you will find effect sizes for various conditions on thinking skills. So the impact of these conditions on thinking skills. So for example, I will often test individuals who have maybe pre-morbid ADHD. Then maybe they've had a history of rather significant alcohol abuse. Then they're um, maybe middle-aged and older and they have high blood pressure, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, and they have evidence of small vessel microvascular disease on MRI, and they have sleep apnea. So I know that the literature shows that all of these other conditions impact thinking skills, and they have a much larger impact on thinking skills than does a concussion two or more years ago. So I set up a graph that shows the relative effect sizes of all of the conditions on thinking skills, and then the jury can see, gee, a remote concussion has a tiny effect size, not significantly different from zero, so virtually no impact on thinking skills and all of these other conditions have major impacts on thinking skills. So I can say this person would be likely to have uh, at least mild declines in thinking skills absent any concussion. The concussion is a non-issue in this case. Now, now, now that's really important. Now you've testified a lot. Uh, and I think this is really important, probably more for trial testimony is how, <laughs> What's your style? Because essentially, in some of these cases, you're, and this is what scares you know, the defense counsel to death, because they don't want to make a jury angry. But as an expert neuropsychologist, how, how do you look at a jury and essentially say, this person's other problems, right? Physical health problems, mental health problems, are what are causing these symptoms, not necessarily a head injury, because I have seen this in our mock trials from excellent clinicians that have said that, and boy, the jury can get super pissed off if that's done the wrong way. How, how do you try to do that in a way that you can get your message across, but you're not you're not beating up the plane of too much? It, it's it's a pretty it, it's a it's a tightrope, isn't it? Yes, and um, what I would say is that. I try to be gentle with the plaintiff. So I'm not saying that they are deliberately misattributing their cognitive problems to the concussion. There's an interesting phenomenon in my field called misattribution 
or the good old days bias, where people, um, we all have little glitches. So you go up to the ATM and for that split second, you cannot for the life <laughs> remember your uh, pin code or what have you. You have these little glitches where you um, forget what you're doing or you walk into a room and you can't remember why. But after you're in an accident, it's almost like our radar goes up and we become hypersensitive to these little glitches that we all have. So what I see is that um, the person is like everyone else having these little glitches, but then an accident happens, then they become exquisitely sensitive to them. And they say, now, wow. since the accident, I walk into the kitchen and I can't remember why. Wow. And uh, gee, my thinking skills are actually getting worse since the accident. And then I look at their history and they have all these chronic illnesses. And I'm thinking, well, yes, you are getting worse over time cognitively because of these conditions. People do not get worse over time due to do a concussion. So I tried to educate the jury that there's this inbuilt mechanism where uh, we start to reorganize our lives around this accident and start attributing things to it that actually we had before the accident. And as we age and accumulate other chronic illnesses, yes, we are going to have little declines in thinking skills. And that the person not deliberately necessarily is attributing their cognitive glitches to the accident when arguably it's not the issue. I think there's a way to say that gently. Yeah, that's yeah. that's important. And um, I think it's, uh, and we talked about this when, when you and I did our talk together is that because uh, I had told you about the recent case I had worked on where we played a video, the neuropsychologist for the defense, who I thought was fantastic as a witness and delivered it in the most professional, friendly way possible. And it really backfired in the defense's case. But a lot, I think the defense had really irritated this jury prior, prior to that. So I think the danger here is you know, while you're the expert witness delivering this information, um, the effectiveness of your information oftentimes can be helped or hurt by what's going on bef before your testimony, right? Absolutely. And I have to say, um, Bill, that what you said at this meeting in California was so important. And uh, this is not something that's discussed in neuropsychological circles but that if the jury doesn't like the defendant, views the defendant as deliberately or negligently causing harm, if they really like the plaintiff, um, those are whole dynamics that come into play and the jury may be uh, not very receptive to listening to the defense experts. That's, that, that's critical and I tell, because I think it's a major flaw um, of some defense attorneys, because they'll tell me, oh, I've got this great expert. I got this great expert, this national reliant. And my first response is, well, yeah, I, I really don't care <laughs> because right. if, if, you're, if your fact witnesses don't perform, that expert's not going to matter, number one. And then number two, if you don't have the, a good story, you know, your, the your defense themes aren't going, going, going well. By the time they get to that expert witness testimony, these judge, these, uh, uh, and as you know all well in neuropsychology, the primacy effect is huge. If you'd like to speak on that, go ahead. But primacy is huge, and the things that jurors are hearing early in a case that the, their brain automatically values very, very highly, regardless of what it is. And so, a lot of this expert testimony may come on the back end of a case, and if jurors have already made up their minds or they're they're leaning really heavily to um, the plaintiff's side, it's pretty hard for an expert witness on the defense side to 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 make up for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And every neuropsychologist has been involved in cases in which the findings were very clear cut. Yeah. For example, that the plaintiff was not performing to true ability, was deliberately misrepresenting cognitive function. And yet the jury comes back with a large verdict. And then I'll look at the case and um, I'm thinking of a case in which the plaintiff was beaten up at a particular venue. And I think yeah. that that was so emotionally charged for the jury that, that they really couldn't uh, listen to anything else. Yeah, I remember we were, uh, I think we were, maybe that was the case we were talking about when I was out there and we gave our talk together. 
but you were, I think you had said there have been some cases you have testified in where you 100% believed <laughs> in your opinion and knew exactly what was going on with this plaintiff and, and they still won and got money yes. and you're, and you're like baffled going, what the hell is going on here? Right. 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 That I knew that if I was speaking to neuropsychologists, they would have agreed with me. They would have said, well, sure. Yeah. But, um, that there are other factors that come into play that jurors think about and listen to. And it uh, shapes whether or not they listen to my testimony. Unbelievable. Well, I'm so, sorry, I got, I got us off of the, off of your path, but I thought that all that stuff was, was very important, but, but please, please proceed with, with, with your outline. Cause I think this is fantastic information for our audience. Sure. So I would just alert um, the listeners to, again, the DSM-5 text revision that came out in 2022, because it is essentially saying that if there are symptom report from a concussion longer than a year, you have to look elsewhere. It is not the concussion. Wow. So they specifically say things like major depressive disorder, PTSD, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, sleep disturbances, um, prescribed medications, other medical conditions. And this is the quote, all of those may contribute to or account for cognitive impairments among individuals with TBI and need to be considered in the differential diagnosis of major or mild neurocognitive dysfunction due to TBI. So here's the diagnostic manual saying, you've got to stand back after the recovery period has closed. You have to stand back and consider all these other things as the true cause of the symptom report. Then just moving on quickly, um, talking about why individuals report long-term symptoms from a concussion. We do need to talk about something called somatic symptom disorder, used to be called somatoform disorder. In lay terms, um, the individual would be viewed as somewhat hypochondriacal. And the DSM-5 is saying that when the severity of the neurocognitive symptoms are inconsistent with the severity of the TBI, you have to consider the presence of a somatic symptom disorder. It's estimated that 30% of neurology clinic patients have a somatoform disorder. So in other words, they are uh, magnifying the seriousness of minor symptoms. They are pre preoccupied with symptoms. They see themselves as more symptomatic and dysfunctional than is truly the case. 30% of neurology clinic patients have this orientation. And certainly they get in accidents like everybody else. So they will, after an accident, continue to report symptoms that are exaggerated. And that has to be considered. That has to be a rule out diagnosis when a patient is reporting long-term symptoms from a concussion. Do they in fact have a somatoform disorder? Wow. Then finally, uh, we come to the issue of deliberate misrepresentation of symptoms or malingering. And the DSM-5-TR is specifically saying that when uh, the severity of the symptoms are inconsistent with outcomes expected after TBI, especially mild TBI, and when neuropsychological testing shows um, poor effort, you do need to consider malingering. And malingering is deliberate misrepresentation of symptoms for an external goal, such as damages in a lawsuit. And there have been surveys of neuropsychologists regarding um, individuals with uh, mild traumatic brain injury. And neuropsychologists estimated that 41% of individuals involved in litigating claims of mild TBI are malingering. So in Wait, other words- Time out, Dr. Boone, time out, time out, time out. Let me, let me, let's just, I want to restate this for the record. Sure. 41%. Right. That's insane. Right. That's, that's, that's nuts. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. So that was the opinion of neuropsychologists that it is ubiquitous. Wow. And so then um, I think as a defense attorney, I'd be asking the opposing neuropsychology expert, what percentage of the time when you are involved in these litigated concussion cases, what percentage of the time are you detecting the plaintiff is not credible? Because the research would suggest that if you're not detecting somewhere around 40% of them as not performing to true ability on testing, you are doing something wrong. Wow. 
that's that, that that's just kind of breathtaking uh that number but obviously clearly you know as they say you know money <laughs> money or potential money right uh messes with your head um that's um that's something now have you seen um or well, i guess in your okay so do you agree with that 41% in your personal clinical experience or is it more or less and has that number changed over time given how litigation uh tendencies and we're a very litigious society right well so obviously um the rates vary month by month year by year uh but i i have seen something recently in california it seems like every other billboard is a personal injury attorney advertisement yes, yes. and so i think we are seeing higher rates of uh, non-credible test performance because i think the billboards are capturing people who otherwise wouldn't even think about suing, but then they see the billboards and they are thinking, hmm, maybe I should try this. So in other words, they're not really convinced of any uh, lingering disability, but they get primed into consulting an attorney based on the billboards. That's, so that's incredible. That's something that uh, we're seeing here in California. Excellent. So then I thought I'd move on quickly and actually discuss what neuropsychological testing is. Yes. And neuropsychological testing is careful, objective, fine-grained measurement of various thinking skills. So things like overall IQ, attention, thinking speed, verbal language skills, math ability, what we call visual perceptual or visual spatial skills, learning and memory, problem solving, et cetera. And then we also do uh, psychological personality testing to look for diagnoses like somatoform disorder. We need to rule out whether or not that is present. And we do that via personality testing. We also need to measure the extent of depression, anxiety, bipolar illness, personality disorder. Again, if someone has a high level of depression, they're going to be re reporting post-concussive symptoms because of the huge overlap between depressive symptoms and post-concussive symptoms. So I like to view neuropsychological testing as a three-step process. The first step is I'm looking at measures, validated measures to determine if the plaintiff is performing detruability on testing. So that's the step one. Am I getting reliable and accurate data? If I can pass that step, then I go to step two which is to measure neurocognitive skills. And then if I detect any deficits in neuropsychological skills, then I go on to step three, which is to determine the cause for the deficits. But if I don't get off of step one, I don't get to go to step two or step three. So the person has to demonstrate that they were performing to true ability on um, testing. So in terms of um, what neuropsychology offers to a defense counsel is first of all, we provide information on credibility of performance on cognitive tests. We also have validity skills and personality testing that let us know whether or not the patient is reporting symptoms accurately. So the first thing that we offer is credibility of performance on testing and report of symptoms. The second thing we offer is whether the test taker has objective evidence of cognitive and or psychiatric abnormalities, not just self-report. And I find many times an entire plaintiff case rests on the plaintiff's self-report of symptoms. But um, we need to rely on objective evidence, not just patient self-report, which can be unreliable for many reasons. And the third thing that neuropsychology can offer is the causes for any detected abnormalities that there are so many conditions that lead to cognitive decline, those have to be carefully considered before we can come to any conclusion that someone has cognitive residuals from a TBI. So coming yeah. back to yeah. the measures that we use to detect whether or not someone's performing to true ability, these are validated methods that determine whether or not someone has in fact applied their best effort on the testing. Practice guidelines in my field indicate that these tests are to be inserted throughout a neuropsychological 
neuropsychological exam. And survey data show that the average number of these tests that are used in a forensic neuropsychological exam is six to eight. So uh, if you're deposing an opposing expert and they have not used, relied upon six to eight of these performance validity tests, they in fact have not adequately verified that a test taker was performing to true ability. Wow. And uh, the more failures that you see on these tests, the higher the probability that the individual is not performing to actual skill levels. So for example, at Harbor UCLA on our patient population there, these were credible patients with all kinds of neurologic and psychiatric conditions, brain tumors, seizures, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, et cetera. 41% of them failed a single performance validity test. 5% failed two, 1.5% failed three, and zero failed four. So if someone is failing three or more performance validity measures, that is essentially 100% predictive of failure to perform to true ability. That, that's, that's very interesting. Now, what does the, what, what does the role of things like um, fatigue, um, maybe the patient's taking uh, medication uh, for physical problem like pain medication, or maybe they're taking a psychotropic uh, medication. How, how does that play into that system? Because I can imagine is, for example, if you had one, someone with say a, a back injury or some sort of chronic pain issue, and they were taking medication that, in other words, how do you sift through that when it comes to these uh, validity tests? Sure. And you can bet I've had these questions posed to me before. Sure. <laughs> um, so the first thing that I would say is that when we validate these tests in these credible patient populations, for example, patients with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, they are in pain. They are taking medications. They have concurrent psychiatric issues. They have PTSD, they have sleep problems, they have fatigue, they have pain, et cetera. And yet they pass these measures. So the rationale behind these tests is that they look difficult, but they're actually very easy. So patients with true brain injury do fine on them because they're easy, okay. but because they can look relatively difficult, patients who are invested in misrepresenting their function do poorly on them. And there was uh, some other elegant, interesting studies in which they took normal controls and they put their uh, non-dominant hands in buckets of ice water. And when the individual would say, ah, that hurts, then they would give them the performance validity test. And sure enough, they passed them. <laughs> so when the, the research is actually studied, what is the effect of pain? What's the effect of opioid medications, et cetera, et cetera. Studies have actually looked at this and whether or not it impacts performance validity test results, and these conditions do not. Well, that's really, really important. Um, we have a little bit of time left, and this is something came up in our seminar, but I think I think this is kind of the apex for it, maybe because what you've seen um, in litigation and what we've seen at the defense bar is the 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 let's just call it the plaintiffs, not just reliance, but maybe over reliance on um, brain scans. Um, they look really cool. Uh, as you know, jurors love stim you know, ver uh, visual stimuli, uh, as opposed to going over these types of data that we're talking about, right? It's a lot, it's a lot more engaging to use these uh, fancy brain scans. And, um, and you see, you see plaintiff's counsel um, using these a lot to say, see, you know, look at this and look at this. And, uh, everything's on this uh, monitor or, or a board and you have different colors of the brain and it, it's pretty appealing, right? From a, um, from a juror's point of view, but what is, what is, now I know that you're not a, a neuroradiologist, however, uh, to what extent have you seen that happen to where um, there's this kind of uh, over-reliance on the, uh, on the brain scans and how jurors can be really persuaded by that, even if it's all baloney. Sure. Um, I've had some neurology friends refer to this more advanced, quote unquote, MRI imaging as the mood ring of neurology. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the problem with these techniques, and I would just point uh, the listeners to the various position papers within the field of neuroimaging indicating that it should not be used in litigation for several reasons, including unreliability of the findings at the level of the individual patient. The papers say, we're using these studies for group data, like Alzheimer's patients versus normal controls, but the findings are not reliable at the level of the individual patient. Additionally, they have very high false positive rates. And one of the studies that I love is where they took a dead salmon, and I did say salmon, and they, <laughs> stuck, it, they stuck it in a scanner, and they said to the fish, I'm going to show you pictures of people in social situations, and I want you to tell me what the people are feeling. Then they scanned the fish, and sure enough, all the little pixels and voxels um, activated. So the point of this paper was to show that even in a dead fish, you're going to get uh, positive findings on these advanced imaging studies. The, the study illustrated the false positive rate. Also, the abnormal findings can be caused by many medical and psychiatric conditions. So again, we are talking earlier about people who have all these chronic medical illnesses, high blood pressure, diabetes, sleep apnea, pre-existing ADHD, depression. All of those conditions are associated with changes on advanced brain imaging. And these uh, abnormal findings are also common in normal individuals. So for all of these various reasons that physicians papers in the field say, the data should not be introduced in litigation. Yeah, you know, I, I really, I really liked salmon up until this point. <laughs> now I'm a I'm a huge salmon fan. Well, that, 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 this this has been a, a fascinating um, discussion. I just want to I want to wrap up here with maybe, um, and I definitely want to have you uh, give us your contact information in case any of our, um, our 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 listeners need to need to retain you or at least. Um, reach, reach out to you. What, what advice would you give defense counsel on, on how to use someone like you um, better? What, what's, what's the best use of, uh, neuro, of, 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 of a neuropsychologist? There may be some of the criteria. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a defense attorney. I'm looking for an expert. You know, how do I make that decision um, as a defense counsel, and then use that witness um, and get the most out of them? Well, uh, the first thing I would point to is I do think it's important, if not mandatory, that the neuropsychological expert be board certified in clinical neuropsychology through the American Board of Clinical Neuropsychology, and that's under the auspices of the American Psychological Association. So if someone's board certified, it means that they had to pass a very difficult test, submit work products, actual redacted reports. And if the person becomes board certified, it means that the organization has judged their work product to be uh, adequate and competent. I'm opposite many, many experts who, um, as far as I can tell, have never even taken a neuropsychological course. Wow. So if if um, if you retain someone who's board certified, then they are in all likelihood at least competent. So I think that's the first step. Okay. And um, and again, I would just say that the neuropsychologist, the point is providing you with accurate, objective data so that we move beyond self-report. Uh, we're way beyond the day where. We simply accept what a plaintiff says about symptoms and determine damages based on that. It really has to be based on objective findings. Is, is there anything that defense attorneys do that make your job more difficult, whether it be getting you, you know, getting you data late or in other words, is, is there something where you're like, gosh, I, I wish the defense attorney would have did this differently because it would have made my life a lot easier and maybe put you behind the eight ball inadvertently. Uh, sure. Sometimes I'll request certain information and they will say, well, the discovery cutoff is gone. Yeah. <laughs> but for example, what I really need uh, many times is uh, would include academic records. Many yeah. times I'll be testing someone and I'll say, oh, my God, this looks like a very severe language based learning disability. Or I'm intuiting that there were ADHD issues and I really wanted to see the school records and um, they were not available to me. 
or employment records, particularly work evals, pre-accident work evals. Many times uh, there will be a history of haphazard uh, work performance. And um, yeah. you certainly wouldn't expect the concussion to improve that. And that sure. can be very important information. Also a pre-accident medical and psychiatric records because I'm combing through those records looking for um, various medical conditions that the person many times did not tell me on the interview. That's so if that information good. isn't available, then that complicates my work. Uh, abs absolutely. Um, well, I think our audience learned a lot. To, uh, Dr. Boone, how, how can uh, attorneys contact you if, if, if they need to retain you or just simply have questions uh, about TBI? Sure. So I do have a website and um, my email address is kboone, so the letter K-B-O-O-N-E at kyleboonephd.com. And we will put that information uh, on the description uh, of this podcast. Dr. Boone, thank you so much uh, for coming on. This was absolutely fascinating. Uh, this issue is not going away uh, anytime soon. Um, and I think that the information that you uh, gave us today was absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much. Certainly. Have and a good our, day. Yeah, great. And to our audience members, thank you so much for participating in another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski. We will see you next time.